Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Callaway Golf can't stop pushing the limits, which is how they've managed to be the number one irons in golf for five consecutive years. That's why they used AI to create the new Maverick Irons. AI has engineered a flash face cap in every Maverick iron for better distances in your entire set. Each club's center of gravity is positioned to optimize launch and help players find new distances. Get new distance at CallawayGolf.ca. Callaway, the number one irons in golf. It was big news in Canada last week when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's finance minister, Bill Morneau, abruptly resigned. And he was immediately replaced by Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, whose roles and responsibilities have been continuously growing during the past few years. Freeland has taken the lead in negotiating a new trade agreement with the U.S., and she's also been orchestrating Canada's response as the U.S. reasserts tariffs on Canadian aluminum in the first signs that another trade war with our closest ally is brewing. Still, her critics contend she lacks experience in finance. And to help break down the news, I spoke to Rebecca Young, Director of Fiscal and Provincial Economics at Scotiabank, who's keeping a close eye on the state of Canada's recovery. Previously in her career, she worked as a senior official in the Department of Finance, so I asked her a little about how Freeland's skill set will lend itself to the responsibilities of her new job. We also talked about the state of the economic recovery, and Young expressed concern about the size of the deficit, but also offered some thoughts on what sort of policies may be under consideration as we shift from emergency spending into a new phase of economic recovery in which the virus appears to be more under control in Canada, at least for the moment. Rebecca Young, thank you so much for joining me. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. There was a lot of big news this week. Bill Morneau is out as finance minister and Christian Freeland is in. As someone who has experience in the Department of Finance and is also really closely attuned to what's happening in the economy, what do you think Christian Freeland brings to the table? Well, I would say she certainly should bring strong experience on both domestic and international policy issues. So that'll be very relevant for her role as new finance minister because she will be dealing with not only domestic economic issues, but also international issues. And there's no shortage of either of those right now. But I think another key uh, strength she brings is really she's a proven negotiator. Uh, We know more recently with the new USMCA, but you also have to recall that recall back in 2016 when she was negotiating with the European Union and she got on a flight, a transatlantic flight, and walked out of negotiations when she didn't think that she was getting a fair deal. So I think that, and that did work. Ultimately, we did reach an agreement that worked in both parties' interests. So I think that that latter part will be very critical that she brings to the table today. A lot of the news coverage has been focusing on the fact that Morneau had this long career in finance. But I think maybe a lot of people don't really know, what are some of the responsibilities of the finance minister? Well, so first of all, the finance minister typically is a, a number two in the government behind the prime minister. So it is a very senior appointment within cabinet. 
Um, ironically, the prime minister did, in this case, appoint a deputy, which was Freeland. So she was already number two and is now you know, strengthening her responsibilities in that area. But the mandate of the finance minister in particular is around defining and executing Canada's economic policy agenda. So she does consult with cabinet colleagues on this, but ultimately the buck stops with her when it comes to accountability. So this ranges from allocating uh, funds across departments and transfers to provinces to managing taxation and expenditures uh, and even financial sector framework. So indeed, there are, you know, there are the, the areas with which she will be responsible are vast and, you know, some can be quite technical, but she does have a very strong and professional bureaucracy that she can lean on in many of the cases. So it's often not a challenge of knowing what the right answer is, but really how to execute and how to gain consensus in that direction. Can you just give me like a basic sense of where we are in the state of the stimulus, like how much we've spent, how much we've set aside? Yeah. And maybe how it's working. Yeah, absolutely. So Minister Morneau in early July gave Canadians a snapshot of where things stand. And he announced that he expected the government to run a deficit this year of $350 billion. So that's about 16% of GDP. And that's unheard of outside of wartime spending. Even during the global financial crisis, spending was around 5% and much of it didn't get out the door in the end. So what we're looking at is, you know, is enormous spending. I would say probably close to two thirds of that has been out the door already. So I, I should caveat that $350 billion is total deficit, of which $230 billion are really COVID spending. And so they've put out the door about two-thirds of that. Most of it has gone to households in terms of the income support, or better known as SERS. Some of it through GST rebates and the Canada Child Benefit. And the other big chunk of it has been around wage subsidy to support businesses. But to your question of how effective has it been, I think you know, first on the metric of getting it out the door, give it A plus for getting it out to households at the onset of the crisis, give it a, you know, more of a C in getting the wage subsidy out the door to businesses because really less than a third of that is out the door and we see plans to extend it and make it easier to tap into. So much of it is out the door already, but we will still see funds flowing through the course of the year. And it'll be a challenge for the minister to push back on further pressures. And quite frankly, it's not a great signal to see another $38 billion announced on day two of the mandate, because one of the biggest challenges will be is saying no in the best of times as a finance minister. But in a time like this, there will be no shortage of demand for, for more spending. Is there a consensus, I guess I should ask, on whether we're spending a lot in terms of stimulus spending? Well, I would say Canada is definitely on the upper end of the spectrum of the amounts that are being spent. But I would divide, you know, really fiscal spending into two phases in this crisis. So they really had to go out big and go out quickly um, at the early phase of the crisis. So we couldn't have Canadians stuck at home, not earning income, not able to pay their rent, not able to pay for their food. So this big spending that went out the door that's commensurate with, say, the U.S. or commensurate with Germany, um, a bit above G7, that really was needed. And it has enabled households, for the most part, uh, to keep their household in, in check more or less. But now as we look at the other side of the recovery, so we've had a, a very strong rebound in this initial phase. 
in part because of this fiscal spending as well as the Bank of Canada measures. As we look to the next phase, it's really not evident from an economic perspective that further spending would be warranted at this stage. Of course, there's more risk that there's another outbreak and that we will have um, closures here and there. We also have risk from what's going on in the U.S. But currently, with our best information, I would say from an economic perspective, there's not necessarily further spending that would be required at this stage. Yeah, it seems like one of the difficulties, too, of trying to roadmap or plot a recovery is that things have calmed down a bit, but we don't have a vaccine. There's still a lot of a lot of jobs that aren't as safe as they were before. There's issues around childcare. So how long do you think the recovery is going to take? We see it as a multi-year recovery. And so you've no doubt heard the alphabet discussion, whether it's a V or a W or an L. We, you know, we see it as a V-shaped recovery in terms of real GDP. So I'd make a distinction there that Scotiabank Economics um, forecasts a contraction of minus 6.6% GDP this year in 2020, followed by a rebound up to 5.4%. So that's where you get that V. But now the swoosh, or if you would like to call it the hockey stick for Canada, um, that comes in when you're talking about GDP levels. So that's, you know, the the, the level of activity. And we don't see the level of GDP activity returning to pre-crisis levels until 2022. And that's consistent with the Bank of Canada um, outlook as well. So that really means that we're not going to be returning to those you know, pre-pandemic um, um, levels of activity well into the future. So hence that multi-year recovery. And it will be uneven, and that's where it's challenging from a policy perspective, is that um, the macroeconomic indicators show, for example, that Canadians have already exceeded their retail spending in June, well above pre-pandemic levels. So that rebounded faster than one might have anticipated, and we're seeing that in housing sales, we're seeing that in auto purchases, manufacturing sentiment is, is positive. But on the other hand, you know, when you do look at that um, swoosh and you do look at activity not returning to norm until at least 2022 and lots of risks on the downside, and then layer on top of that this unevenness that some sectors like travel sector and tourism, um, basically any industry that is difficult to maintain physical distancing is going to feel the pain for a lot longer and may, in fact, not return to normal levels. So it really becomes on aggregate, um, you know, we're positive at where we stand right now. We're definitely in that sweet spot of a rebound, you know, a technical rebound in part because, you know, when you stop everything coming back from nothing, you know, we'll show a big boost. But we do see that decelerating somewhat as, you know, as, as we head into the summer and into the fall, I should say, um, and definitely into the winter and next year. So it is, you know, it is a marathon. We do need to, you know, make sure that we're not leaving Canadians behind, but we're helping them get back in, you know, into the economy uh, as is safe to do so. One of the things that I've heard just going back to the Morneau resigning was that that they wanted to use this spending, which is a massive amount, as you said, to make a sort of transformational impact on the economy. But it sounds like in some ways that's not really what 
what's happening, that, that this is really just EI sort of patching people through. I wonder what you think about that if, if you see any sort of major transformations to the economy at the end of this recovery. We will certainly be watching um, on September 23rd when the government uh, announces its new speech from the throne. So that really will set the new agenda. And they're using all the right words around, you know, long-term recovery plan and transformational agenda, you know, but it's really, we need to see what policies underpin that outlook. And so you're right that what we heard around the new uh, income replacement schemes on day two really are still back in this, you know, the phase of emergency spending to help Canadians bridge through what we haven't seen yet is what is that bigger, ambitious economic recovery plan for Canada and how, you know, what will the fiscal cost be in recognition of the fact that we already have a debt, a net debt at the federal level that will likely be above 50% of GDP this year. So not necessarily a lot of headroom in that fiscal space, but a really need to set out this agenda that is about longer term growth as, a, as opposed to emergency spending in the, in the height of a pandemic. Right. Emergency spending. Any idea sort of what policy considerations are in discussion? We certainly heard a lot around a green transition or green transformation. And so it'll be left to, you know, hopefully we'll get a glimpse of what that means to the government in September. And and I should say, following the speech from the throne, we would expect to see a budget um, with, you know, within the next couple of weeks, say in October. And that should really detail out these policy items, but certainly a, a, a green agenda that looks at uh, accelerating the transition to a more sustainable economic uh, pathway for Canada will, you know, will likely be an important part of that. The big question is how they will do it. There's, you know, some expectation that it will be looking at mobilizing financial markets to support that transformation. So it may not have a big fiscal cost. A second area that we could expect to see is around really uh, improving the flow of infrastructure funds. And so this hasn't been a matter of not having enough funds committed to infrastructure in Canada. It's been around other bottlenecks, you know, ranging from identifying investable projects to actually, you know, getting shovels in the ground. And so we just have this constant reprofiling of infrastructure funds that, you know, that could be improved. So without additional fiscal cost to the government, they could actually increase activity if they can figure out how to work through these multi-layers of government systems to to get projects underway. So I think that that would be that one of these policy areas that could deliver, you know, stronger growth longer term, at, you know, with less fiscal cost. And of course, we've heard about things like removing internal trade barriers between provinces. Um, a fourth area, a final one I just identify is really around childcare, and that's something that could be a, a sweet spot between the NDP and the Liberals when they're navigating a minority context. We know from the Quebec experiences that this can actually pay for itself by getting more females into the labor force in the long run. So, so that's an area that I would say should be on the agenda. You just kind of hinted at some of the political deals that, that may help determine policy. And you said before you thought one of Freeland's 14 is as a negotiator. Can you talk a little about what sorts of challenges you see in the road ahead for her and the fall and they unveil some of these new policy measures? Yes, I, I don't even know where to start with the challenges. So I think, you know, she's coming into this job. We're in the middle of an unprecedented economic and health crisis. So very little time to get up to speed. She's going to have to be 
ready and, and take quick decisions and move forward. No time for, you know, deliberating um, much. She's also leading in a minority government contest, so she's going after broker support across, across parties and parties that have opposing ideologies, you know, on a range of issues. She's heading policy framework in a highly decentralized country that she relies on the cooperation of provinces, territories, municipalities to execute on a lot of these areas. And again, you know, a whole lot of political stripes across the country. And, you know, and later on top of that, we're in the middle of yet another trade war with our biggest and closest trade partner in the U.S. that's also experiencing, a, you know, quite a tragic pandemic experience right now. And she has deficit spending pretty much committed for the most part. So how is she going to deliver on an economic recovery plan, yet signaling to markets that she's doing so in a fiscally responsible way? So I see those are where really that negotiation and consensus building will really come in, you know, will be critical as she navigates all of these different uh, complexities. Just last question, maybe. I mean, you just said sort of deficit spending is committed. They did just announce $37 billion in new measures. How much larger do you think the stimulus spending could conceivably grow? Well, that's the um, that's the tricky question. Yeah. That right now, you know, Canada and the, and the Liberal government has not wanted to, you know, have some sort of fiscal anchor that would lock them into a certain debt trajectory. They prior to the crisis, they just committed to keeping debt on a downward trajectory as a share of the economy. But crisis hit, and that was out the window. So now, right now, it's really really only markets that are maintaining that discipline. And I think that it would be appropriate for the government to be carefully watching because markets are nonlinear, so they can change sentiment very quickly. And it's not just the amounts that Canada would be spending, but also the composition and the duration. And so if the sense is that come fall, Canada is announcing tens of billions of additional spending that is going to be multi-year ongoing and hence structural, and it's going to be more of a social nature, so not enhancing growth potential, so not really lifting growth. I think those would be the signals that would concern markets, and they would be looking at the countries that are demonstrating discipline and demonstrating that they're going to bring debt on a downward trajectory and demonstrating that they're really focused on lifting growth over the medium term. So I think that those are some of the factors that markets will be looking for come September and October with the new finance minister. Well, it's really going to be interesting to watch what happens as we shift away from emergency spending into um, this new sort of phase in the fall. And I thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca, and sharing your thoughts on this topic. My pleasure. That was Rebecca Young, Director of Fiscal and Provincial Economics at Scotiabank. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Down to Business and a big note of appreciation to our team. Music and production by Bryce Hall. Editing by Yadula Hussein. And web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman. And until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.